Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Antonella Puka. She's the Senior Director of Alvarez and Marsal Valuation Services. She's also the author of a new book, Early Stage Valuation, A Fair Value Perspective. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Antonella, one of the first questions that I want to ask you today is why is there so much angst when people think about valuations? And we've seen such a disconnect between fundamentals and then what we see on the markets. From my perspective, the the way to look at valuation is uh, valuation gives uh, the investors a good ground to make selections and, and allocate capital to investments, looking at it from a longer term perspective. So through valuation analytics, you can get a sense of what the fundamentals of the companies are and get a sense of how the company may be performing over a longer period of time, which will allow your investment to grow based on the company's fundamentals. Now, the question is that these days, you have a lot of players in the market, many of which may be driven by considerations that are not just related to purely financial returns. You have governments that step in and that have their own agenda. Uh, You have large nonprofit organizations that may have objectives which go sometimes beyond the purely financial returns that may be willing to take on projects that, for instance, may not be as profitable or to achieve their objectives. And you also have sometimes corporations that may invest in certain certain companies because those companies bring synergies to their operations and they may engage in activities in the market that may place more value on a particular company because they may be interested in using the technology that the company is developing for their own purposes and that could bring additional value relative to what normal market participants would bring. So all these factors, even aside from what we are seeing in terms of COVID or or, or other exceptional set of circumstances, may lead the market to prices that depart from the idea of traditional fair value as it was developed uh, since the 1950s, basically, and the idea of a capitalist system that's purely driven by market forces. Is it fair to say then that it's the supply and demand of market participants really that is driving a lot of the interaction and ultimately then affecting valuation? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These are all market participants, but I guess the distinguishing factor is that financial returns are one component of what they're looking at, and they're not probably they're not the only component uh, and sometimes not even perhaps the main component. So effect that we have on prices um, over over the longer term, valuations and the company's performance is going to lead the market. But in the, in the shorter term, you do have to consider all these other factors that can significantly affect prices. It's interesting, you know, because when you go through university and when you study the CFA program, you, know, you come across three sort of really key 
approaches to valuation. You've got an income approach, you've got an asset-based approach, and then you've got a market approach. Now, it feels like the income approach and the asset-based approach have sort of almost been thrown out the window and everything's been driven by the market approach. Is that a fair assumption? Well, I would still think that to get a real and solid perspective on a company, you do need to look at all three approaches in some capacity. So the market approach is certainly very key to coming up with valuation estimates, but uh, the income approach and and the asset-based approach are also uh, uh, very important. And uh, from the asset-based approach these days is, is uh, I, I would agree that it tends to be um, very often put aside. But on the other hand, that's the approach that can give you, especially in a situation of, of stress, this approach can give you a sense of a floor valuation for the company. So the characteristic of the asset-based approach is, what is basically to look through the corporate veil and uh, to identify the various assets uh, um, and also the liabilities that are are the key drivers of value for that company. And based on that, estimate the value for the company that could be achieved if the company, in a way, was broken out into its individual pieces. And for instance, if you have an early stage company that's still not profitable and you're not sure about your your future, one way to approach valuation is to look at its intangible assets, for instance. And the company may have a lot of value in that it may have patents or may have licensed assets that can be be conceivably sold separately or that can be uh, of interest to a strategic buyer. And so those are going to drive the company's value. So that's one way to look at it. In terms of the income approach, I mean, the income approach in the end is uh, the approach that Aside from market fluctuations that can be short-lived in nature, the income approach is the approach that is going to give you more of a longer-term perspective on the company. And a key for the income approach, which Damodaran has many times stressed, is the fact that when you develop an income approach, you need to have a vision of the company. You need to have a longer-term perspective of what the company can do, how the company fits into this market, and build a model that reflects your vision. In many cases, for an early stage company in particular, this may need the development of a dynamic model, which looks at the company perhaps across multiple stages, first as a high growth company, then as a company that gradually moves towards the long-term growth stage, and then looks at terminal value as compared to comparable companies that are more mature in the market. But you need to have this vision. And at the moment, one of the challenges of the income approach is the fact that particularly because of COVID disruptions, uh, companies have had challenges in uh, coming up with projections for their future revenue, for their costs, uh, for uh, their profitability that are going to be affected by COVID, though in many cases in, in some capacity. And at the moment, it's very hard to imagine what those effects are going to be. You know, you mentioned there about the difficulty of projections. And is that the reason why people are moving away from the income approach and looking at the market approach? That's certainly, I would think that's certainly one of of the aspects. But I, I still think that people are looking at the income approach together with market. I mean, a market approach has its own issues. So it's not a perfect solution, you know, for valuation these days. And in a way, the strength of the valuation comes from looking at all these methods, from looking at the income 
approach and the market approach and sometimes the asset based and getting a picture of the company that's more comprehensive and perhaps a little less biased than if you only use one methodology. The very fact of trying to implement a market an income approach will lead you to a better understanding of your investment. When you talk about the income approach, there's so many different ways to measure income. Do you look at the EBITDA? Do you look at cash flows ultimately? How do you actually make sure that it is a true reflection of of the organization? Well, the starting point of a uh, income approach is often management's projections. So you do need to have some insight from management into how they think the company is going to develop many times over a period of three to five years. So based on that, you start by looking at those estimates critically. You look at them in comparisons to what to other companies, similar companies that you see in the market to, to, to understand if their projections are reasonable, particularly you would look at things like operating margin, gross margins to to understand if what you receive from management makes sense and make adjustments accordingly. And then based on those estimates, you need to develop your own perspective and see according to your vision how that company is going to perform going forward. And that's really where the skills of the analyst comes into place because it's an art more than a science in many ways. And that process itself, I think, helps you in a way, understand better your investment. Let's talk more specifically about the discount rate. Because we're at such low interest rates, the risk-free is so low and the risk premium is so low, that's had a very large impact on valuations. And so how do you then think about the sensitivity now of the risk-free rate and the market risk premium when you're trying to do valuation? Given that they're so low, any very small difference has a very large impact. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very much the case. And if you think about it, I mean, the the present value of a stream of cash flows depends on two components, depends on the cash flow amount and depends on the discount rate. And the lower the discount rate, the higher the present value is going to be. So in a situation where you have very low rates to start with, a very small increase can cause a very large effect on the present value of the cash flows. And if you start from a certain level of discount rate and you decrease it, the present value is going to increase, which is also behind some of the high valuations that we see today in the market. So having said that, it's fundamental thing to keep in mind for the discount rate is that the discount rate has to be related to the projections. The discount rate reflects the risk of those projections. From an investor point of view, it's the rate that would lead the investor to make the investment that would justify essentially taking the risk of investing in a company. And the higher the risk of the projections, the higher the discount rate is going to be and the lower the present value. So in a situation like we're seeing now, where for instance, we have we are still many times using all the projections that the companies the company may not have updated its projection, for instance, in a case like this, you know, you may want to consider uh, perhaps increasing your discount rate to reflect the higher risk of the projections. In terms of how to determine the discount rate, I mean, the discount rate really generally includes uh, three components. It includes consideration of a risk-free rate, which uh, uh, in the U.S., for instance, for company valuation is often the 20-year U.S. Treasury, and that rate went down 
quite significantly. Then it would, as a second component, it would include a spread over the risk-free rate that represents market risk. And finally, a company-specific risk premium. So the market component of the rate has uh, gone up generally since your end. So at Talvares, we now use a 6.5% rate to identify the uh, equity risk premium generally. And then to that, you may want to add an industry risk premium that reflects the risk of the specific industry in which the company operates. And then you have the third component, which is the company-specific risk premium. Given that uh, the overall effect in most cases of the discount rate relative to year-end has been a general increase, which has resulted in often in a a decrease in valuations relative to year-end. We've been talking mainly about equity markets in the most part. Let's switch it to the unlisted space, which is predominantly real assets and infrastructure. And this is an area particularly where valuations are critically important. What are the sort of issues that you've seen to date, particularly in real estate and and infrastructure? Well, real assets have some special considerations in the way, I mean, so far we've talked about the income-based approach and the asset-based and market approach as they apply to companies in general. So once you move to real assets and infrastructure, there are specific features that need to be taken into account in the way these models are applied. So for instance, when you look at the income approach, one very important characteristic is that for real assets have a generally finite life. So we we are not dealing with a company where terminal value is calculated considering that the company has an infinite life. I mean, in most cases here, we definitely need to have a stopping point. And that's very important in coming up with their cash flows projections. So other characteristics, I mean, if you think in terms of market, of a market-based approach, you would look at many times EBITDA and revenue multiples are not really the drivers here. You, you may want to look at the enterprise value multiples that refer to other metrics. Um, for instance, for mining assets, you tend to look at price to net asset value. Or in the uh, solar space, uh, you may want to look at the price value per megawatt of installed capacity for solar plants and so on. In other cases, you want to uh, take a look at the enterprise value over regulatory over the regulatory asset base. So you need to be aware of the specific of each uh, industry and of each type of asset or infrastructure project to really figure out what's the right multiple to use. In terms of other considerations, this is an area where, particularly when you look at infrastructure, the role of government is maybe very relevant for determining valuation. So government regulation may be very impactful. So part of the uh, analyst insight has to focus on what the influence of governmental and regulatory decision may be on uh, the project. Let's transition to venture capital, private equity. How do you value these fast-growing businesses? Okay, so for VCs, I mean, in many cases, uh, one of the characteristics of uh, VC-backed companies is that these companies often have a very high growth potential. And they may have already a sizable stream of revenue, but they often don't yet have profits or their profitability is still limited. So in a situation like this, the focus tends to be on revenue 
rather than uh, other metrics like, like EBITDA. So this is one characteristic that's common. And in my book, I mean, part of the idea of the book is uh, based on defining early stage company as companies that you know, no matter their size, they still have negative profitability. And I would say that over the past 10 years, number of very large companies that have very significant revenue streams, but have still of still negative profitability has uh, has increased and has uh, has also played a much more relevant role uh, in both the private and the public markets. So we we have the phenomenon of the so-called unicorns, which are companies that are have a value above one billion, and many of them are still not profitable. So for venture capital, to go back to your question, the revenue is often the, the driver of the valuation more than the, any profitability metric. So that's one consideration. The other important feature from evaluation perspective is that when you use a DCF for this company, a discounted cash flow model, it's very important to approach it as a dynamic model. So for a stable company, you can have revenue growth of a certain percentage that stays substantially stable over time. And then you can apply a cost of capital that is basically the same for the entire period of your projection. When you deal with a with a very high growth company, it's critical. I mean, this high growth is not going to last forever. And the risk profile of this company is going to change over time. So just Generally, I would say at least having a three-step process where you distinguish a high growth phase as phase A, and then you have a period of declining growth as phase B, and then you have the long-term stable growth as phase C. It's kind of important so that you can look at each stage and determine what the growth rates for revenue are going to be at each stage. And you determine what the cost of capital is going to be at at each stage. And that's not going to be the same. So this dynamic model has to be in your mind when you look at DCF for for venture-backed companies. Is that also like an option pricing model that you can use to understand these different stages or steps of the company? Well, option pricing, I mean, generally what happens is that when you are in a situation where you're really having challenges in developing projections for an early stage company, you may want to consider using some more advanced statistical tools for projecting revenue, for instance. Sometimes you, uh, I mean, in some cases, you you may use a model like Monte Carlo simulation or some form of option pricing. Um, I would say to the extent you have an idea, uh, a more precise idea of how this company is going to develop. I mean, this model may have limited utility, but in some cases you can play it also to to envision various possible scenarios for the company and see what could happen in a uh, situation that gives a greater weight to unpredictability. How do you deal with the complex capital structure that we see with so many venture capital investments? There's just so many rounds that are there and the various covenants that sit within each round. It is in, in a VC world, it's, uh, I would say, the norm to find complex capital structures where you have multiple rounds uh, of uh, preferred stock uh, with different rights and privileges. So it's absolutely, I mean, once you move the valuation steps from enterprise value to valuing an individual equity interest in a company, whether it's preferred or common, it's absolutely critical to consider the uh, various uh, the differences in in the legal terms 
of the various securities and reflecting that into the valuation. So generally, there are methodologies to do that. I mean, there is a, uh, there are waterfall approaches that run essentially the enterprise value through the various types of investments uh, on securities that the company has um, to come to the to differentiate between them. And also there are option pricing models that you can use uh, to allocate enterprise value to, to the various securities. And so that's a uh, very important. And also, you know, the recent uh, AICPA guide on uh, PMVC valuation uh, is focused on that and has provided a lot of guidance on how uh, to actually execute this type of enterprise value allocation. So also... Another th- important thing to keep in mind is that, I mean, we are coming from a period of, for many years, of strong performance in the VC markets. And uh, in many cases, what happens is that if you have an IPO exit, uh, or sometimes in, in an M&A uh, exit, the shares, uh, independently of the preference, uh, they get they get, they all get converted into common and eventually the exit happens at the same price for all shares, independently of their features. So in, that, in a situation like this, uh, whether you have a more secured uh, series uh, with more rights or a more junior, in a way, I mean, the, the, the differences get, get wiped out because everything gets converted at the same price. Having said that, to the extent we find ourselves uh, now heading perhaps into a more challenging economic environment, these differences may turn out to have a very significant effect on the ultimate valuation result that you get. So basically, the whole idea of having a liquidation preference is to protect investor in case perhaps the company doesn't perform all that great or the exit doesn't happen at a price that would give all the investors uh, an equal share in the proceeds. And in this particular context, all these uh, covenants and preferences and uh, rights are going to really affect, have the potential at least to really affect the value and the multiple uh, that you get at exit. You mentioned there about exit and obviously exit has a very big impact on performance. But before we get there, you know, one of the biggest issues that you have around VC and private equity is around valuations and how that then plays onto performance and then fees that, that are charged. You know, how do you blend those two together where you've actually got a good understanding of how performance is going so that there is an alignment between the performance of the actual investment and then the fees that are paid out? First of all, from the performance point of view, I mean, one of the key metric on which performance is generally assessed on uh, both for an investor in a closed-end fund and many times for individual projects is the internal rate of return or IRR. So the IRR is a key metric for performance, but it's also a metric that's very dependent on the timing of cash flows. And the timing of cash flows can, to some extent, be manipulated by by the manager um, based on their decision of when to call capital and also based on the decision of whether to use uh, to use uh, uh, subscription lines of credit that are becoming very common in the industry and also it is very dependent also on the timing to exit so for instance let's say that you make an investment of 50 million in a company and then you exit at 100 million. So you have basically you have doubled your investment in this company. The IRR is going to be extremely affected by when the exit happened. So if you exit from the investment at the end of year 2, the IRR on in this particular case is going to be 41% on an annualized basis. 
If, on the other hand, you exit, you know, at the end of year five, the IRR is going to drop to 15%. And if the, you exit at the end of year seven, the IRR is going to drop even further to 10%. So you can imagine that if you, as a manager of this fund, you are earning performance fees based on your IRR return, the fees that you're going to earn are going to be very different depending on the timing of this exit. So that's one consideration. The other aspect of performance, I mean, is a subscription lines of credit. So if the fund has a subscription line of credit in place, those can also significantly affect the IRR results. So what happened is a subscription line of credit is a line of credit that the manager of a fund can arrange with an external bank that are guaranteed by the capital committed by the investors and by the fund assets. So what happens is that the manager of the fund, uh, let's say they have to make a $100 million investment. So rather than calling capital from its investor, the manager can go to a bank, obtain the $100 million um, as a loan and invest that amount, which results in a form of leveraging effect for the fund. So that instead of using investor capital and employing those funds and calling capital, they can rather use the funds that are provided by the bank to make the purchase. So the fund manager can leverage the fund assets this way. And the result of this can have a significant impact on the IRR. For instance, Let's say that uh, the fund makes an investment of 100 million and exits uh, at 170 million. So uh, at the end of your five. So let's say that you have a, for instance, a 2% management fee and you have an interest uh, rate of 4% per year on your um, 100 million of borrowed money from the bank. So if the manager uses full funding, so it obtains, uh, you know, the 100 million by calling capital from its investors, the IRR in this situation is going to be 7.51%. On the other hand, if you use a subscription line of credit for just one year, the IRR goes up to 8.18%. And if you use a subscription line of credit for two years, the IRR goes up to 9.10%. So this is a good case where to show how the IRR varies according to whether subscription lines of credits are used or not. If, for instance, this fund has an agreement where the manager receives an incentive fee if the IRR is above 8%, you know, this is a very good example to, to see that the fund manager uses the subscription line of credit. IRR is going to be above 8%. So they will receive an incentive fee. And if, on the other hand, they use uh, just investor capital, the IRR is going to be 7.51%. So they will not receive an incentive fee. So the subscription lines of credit have a real impact on fund fees and on performance, as reported. So what should investors be looking for then as an alternative approach? You know, if IRR is so sensitive, should they be looking at multiples of money or some sort of total value to paid in amount? What's a better way to make sure that the performance is aligned with both the investor and the manager? So I would suggest that investors may want to look at three components of performance. IRR is certainly one of them, and it's important for investors to be aware of what the IRR is both with and without the subscription line of credit. So that's something that the fund manager can calculate for them. And uh, in order to have a real understanding of what the IRR is, uh, 
it is important that they also, the investors also ask for an IRR figure that's that's calculated assuming that there is no subscription line of credit in the fund. So that can be done. The second component that they should look at is a multiple of invested capital. Generally, this is a metric which is called TVPI, total value to paid in. And that gives the, the investor an idea of in absolute value, what is the value of their investment, including both the capital that's still in the fund, the fair value of the fund, as well as any distribution relative to the capital that was contributed. And then the third component is a risk metric. So total value to paid in and IRR are important metrics of performance, but you also need a metric that tells you what the risk is. And you can, for instance, deal with this by looking at the fund performance relative to a benchmark. And it's very important to consider this type of metrics. Uh, You can look at volatilities in some cases, but you need to consider risk as well as part of your performance. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Antonella. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.